The information conveyed in this podcast is for educational purposes only and does not substitute for clinical advice or consultation. This is Dr. Mehul Mankad, and you're listening to Episode 5 of the Psychiatry and Law Podcast, Involuntary Commitment. My name is Alan Newman, and I'm the chairman of psychiatry at California Pacific Medical Center in San Francisco, and I'm also a forensic psychiatrist. Dr. Newman, thank you so much for joining us to talk about this very important topic, involuntary commitment, involuntary hospitalization. This, this has a lot of words uh, that people use around the country to describe it. The acronym is often uh, IVC, and I think for general psychiatrists and general mental health practitioners, uh, this topic is going to be very relevant, at least as relevant as your uh, talk on uh, suicide risk assessment. So before we talk about involuntary commitment, maybe we should talk a little bit about voluntary patients. Now, the terms obviously are going to vary by state. In some states, they have very specific ideas about what uh, voluntary patients are. In my state of North Carolina, there's a distinction between uh, what are called pure voluntary patients that you might find on uh, gen med units or surgical units and conditional voluntary patients. Are you familiar with that distinction? I am. And in California, it's uh, an area where there's a lot of confusion, I think, because it's not, it's not as clear in the written language of the statute what is the practice. But there's definitely a difference between, you know, people who can come and go as they please, more or less, and people who sign in voluntarily, which doesn't necessarily mean that you can just walk out the door. And that confusion is something that has to really be an element of the informed consent process. Uh, I think one of the biggest mistakes people make on units is that they'll allow someone to sign in voluntarily, and the patient doesn't realize that they can't just walk out the door. The example I give to my residents is think of it as when we talk about the military in the United States, we we call it a voluntary army. Well, just because you're in a voluntary army doesn't mean that you can just walk off the base or go home when you're deployed. What you are doing with voluntary is you're consenting to being admitted to a locked unit and you have a right to certain procedures if you desire to be discharged, but it doesn't mean you can come and go as you please. And that has to be explained to the patient on the front end or, you know, it's really a, a suspicious consent. So with, with those types of voluntary admissions to locked inpatient units, in some states, the patient has to formally request discharge, and then the unit has a certain number of hours or sometimes days to comply with that request. That's my understanding. Yes, I've seen that in, in uh, a number of states. And it, it's in some ways, it's a, a nice thing to have because it buys you often some time. In fact, in some jurisdictions, the amount of time is pretty much the length of what the initial hold would have been if they had come in involuntarily. What should never happen is you signed involuntarily, so now you can leave. It should be clear to the patient that you allow to sign involuntarily that if they do request to leave, you know, there there will be some kind of assessment to make sure that they're safe, um, and that needs to be communicated on the front end. You make a couple of great points. Uh, one is that if you're in a state practicing inpatient psychiatry where there is a number of hours or a couple of days 
to comply with a leave request for a voluntary psychiatric admission, one of the reasons for that time lag is to give the unit enough time to consider whether the patient should be converted to an involuntary status. The, the other point that it sounds like you're making is that it also gives the unit uh, time to arrange for a safe discharge or observe the patient a little bit longer to confirm that a safe discharge is possible. Absolutely. I think that the level of dangerousness, and particularly if you're dealing with issues like grave disability, but even when it comes to other aspects of commitment, things can be different at three in the morning than the next day. And it's not just that you have time to maybe corral some services together or to make sure that family are engaged or there's something else. But also, um, it gives you time to do an adequate risk assessment. If you're feeling a pressure to get somebody out the door, you're at risk of making some mistakes. And so it should require enough time to do a good risk assessment. But what I have advised people in the past is that even if the law permits you a pretty long time, one of the main reasons that we want patients to sign involuntarily is that you don't want to win the battle and lose the war. The idea is to keep people engaged in treatment. And if somebody leaves a hospital angry, feel like their rights were violated, they feel like they weren't listened to, then they might not engage in treatment in the future. And so you want to be respectful of people's preferences, which is why I like to use voluntary admissions whenever we can. So, uh, Dr. Newman, we, um, we certainly want as many patients as possible to have the least restrictive alternative and to have as much decision-making power as they can. Could you contrast a, a voluntary admission, regardless of what kind of voluntary admission, with involuntary commitment? What is that? Well, so involuntary commitment is the situation where you have a person that you've identified that cannot because of their mental illness, stay in the community safely. And it's defined differently in different statutes. But generally, it's because they're either uh, an immediate danger to themselves or others or in some form gravely disabled. Now, the problem is is that there's lots of voluntary patients that meet those criteria. But the additional element within voluntary treatment is the person is refusing treatment. They're refusing to come into the hospital. And No, it's less really about treatment than um, containment. One of the terms I've used, or one of the terms I've heard used to describe this process is civil commitment. Why, Why would people call it civil commitment instead of involuntary commitment? The way I think of it is that you're dealing with civil liberties and civil rights, and the deprivation of somebody's civil rights is a serious business. Sometimes doctors tend to think in terms of parents patriae, the idea that um, it's our responsibility as doctors to do what the person needs uh, to protect them. But most involuntary commitment standards are really more about what are called the police powers of the state, that we need to protect society from a dangerous person. And so to take away a person's liberty is a very serious issue. You're, You're depriving somebody of their liberties. And so they're entitled to protections, even though they've not committed a crime. When you think of civil law, you're thinking of laws that are not criminal laws, but laws that affect things like our freedom and our independence and our interactions with the government and law enforcement. Those are those are very good points. And, and as you bring up the law, 
sounds like uh, you're, you're giving us a bit of a sense of the historical origins of civil commitment. One term you mentioned is uh, parents patriae. Could you go back to that and tell us a little bit more about that? Well, for most of history, if someone was seen to be dangerous, there wasn't um, a lot of consideration about what they wanted. And if a physician felt that the person needed to be in a hospital, then they went into the hospital. And in fact, uh, historically, there were lots of circumstances where even, you know, a husband could have his wife committed. And and there's a very famous case from the 1860s uh, where it was challenged by a woman who was committed by her husband. And it's sort of unbelievable now to, to think that, you know, that that was happening. But for most of the 20th century uh, in the United States, it was really considered, you know, a form of beneficence. You know, these are sick people who need help and they may not realize they need help, but we as physicians recognize that. And it really wasn't until the 1960s that the civil rights of the mentally ill developed sort of a robust set of protections. You know, prior to that point, the, you know, the basis was really, you can't take care of yourself. The state needs to make sure that you're taken care of. And also you might be dangerous and we need to keep you off the street. And so uh, the parents patriae is that element that involves somebody being taken care of by the state because they can't take care of themselves. And the police power is really we need to be protected from you. And so the state has that kind of authority. And that's always been the basis of involuntary hospitalization. So it sounds like there's been a shift over the past uh, maybe half century from the historical origins of psychiatrists acting as this kind of uh, father knows best type of person who is putting people in the hospital for their benefit. And, and I imagine uh, most of these were intended to, in fact, help people to a more uh, limited application of involuntary commitment. Absolutely. You know, the action was really something that started at a hospital that I used to work at. I I used to work at St. Elizabeth's Hospital in Washington, D.C., and the uh, case of Lake V. Cameron in the 1960s was one of the, uh, a very influential case because it was sort of the classic example of somebody who was being hospitalized because they couldn't take care of themselves. This was an elderly woman, maybe with dementia, And Judge Bazelon, who was the chief judge in D.C., used the term least restrictive alternative to describe the treatment setting that, you know, should be considered, that you shouldn't just put somebody in a locked asylum because that's what you have. You need to at least explore whether there are less restrictive opportunities. Now, you mentioned that there's a lot of process and procedure that goes with involuntary commitment. And I I imagine a lot of that has to do with protecting the civil rights uh, and ensuring due process uh, compliance for all individuals who are undergoing this. Could you share with us some general principles that take place? And I I imagine there are significant state-to-state variations. Well, there's so many state-to-state variations that it's uh, easy, I think, sometimes to get lost in the weeds. But if you look at what the majority of states do that are similar, one of the most common things, first of all, is there's a process to put what's called a hold on somebody. And sometimes that's done uh, by law enforcement. The law enforcement are called to somebody's house and a certain person is behaving in a certain way. And there's a hold that the police utilize. Other types of holds 
maybe once somebody comes into an emergency setting and they're seen by a physician. And where it gets confusing is some states do a very good job of sort of delineating what's the police hold and what's the physician hold. Uh, and other states sort of use the same terminology for both, which can get very confusing. But what the hold means is that you are documenting that the person meets the criteria to be detained. And uh, in some places, probably most places, it's a 72-hour hold. In some places, it's less. A 48-hour hold was what we had in Washington, D.C. And sometimes people get hung up on the paper itself. Uh, it's important to, you know, the paper is necessary to document what you're observing and to, uh, in some ways, start a legal process. But the piece of paper doesn't stop the person from walking out of the emergency room. It's it's your systems that are in place in a hospital that keep somebody from walking out the door. So sometimes people get hung up and say, well, is has the form been filled out yet? Or the form's filled out now. The form documents that you're Compli- that the person meets the criteria for the hold, uh, uh, that you're making sure that they're notified of their rights, um, but it, the piece of paper doesn't stop them from walking out the door. And hospitals need to have systems in place where patients that are dangerous don't just walk out the door. And, and I've seen some bad cases where you know, the form hadn't been filled out yet, and so they just let the person walk out the door, when in reality, on an emergency basis, they could have justified keeping the doors locked until they uh, address some of the paperwork issues. So you're almost describing it like uh, maybe like a code situation where there's a critical mentally ill patient who is at risk of elopement from an unsecured area. And the psychiatrist may have cognitively decided that they will fill out the paperwork as soon as they can sit down and grab a pen. And in the meantime, uh, staff have to acknowledge that there will be a few minutes between sitting down to do the paperwork and get it notarized and sent off to the county versus what needs to happen to take care of this human life. Like most emergencies, there's going to be a lot of latitude given to physicians who act in what they believe is the right thing to do in an emergency setting. If somebody is trying to power their way through uh, doors or pull a window off the wall, the issues related to what the status of the paperwork shouldn't get in the way of doing the right thing immediately. And this is also relevant to the issue of voluntary hospitalization. You know, if you know they're dangerous, you need to act and you can convert them to involuntary pretty quickly. That's another great example to remind us that a voluntary admission in some states is a deprivation of civil liberties and the patients uh, can be detained. Speaking of the person making these decisions uh, and filling out paperwork, does it vary by state as to who is eligible to complete uh, IVC paperwork and submit it to the local courts? It varies considerably. And what's interesting is in California, California is such a large state that in some ways it almost operates like its own country and you actually have county by county variation. Uh, In most places... It's a single set of state laws that define the standards. But there's some places where it can only be a physician. There's others where it could be a physician or a psychologist. It can be in California in an emergency room setting. You can have an emergency physician or a general psychiatrist in an emergency room do a 5150. But uh, an internist on a hospital ward can't place the involuntary hold. So there is a lot of variation 
it's often confusing to people. In California, we call it a 5150. Places can get in a lot of trouble if they don't know their own statutes. Some places put restrictions on licensure. In California, the county-by-county variation allows residents in their first year to place a hold if they have completed a certain kind of approved training. In other places, a trainee wouldn't be allowed. Just to make matters uh, even more complicated, uh, sometimes I hear individuals, both residents and sometimes attending psychiatrists, use the term committed. They'll say, well, I've committed this patient. And when in fact, what what they really have done is fill out the first set of paperwork and that paperwork has been sent off to some sort of court-type authority. In your opinion, is that the same as the patient being committed? You know, I think there's a lot of confusion by physicians on what that means. And the hold period should not be considered the same as the legal adjudication. Uh, So in California, you know, anybody who is approved to put the person on a 72-hour hold can do it, but the actual commitment is when a court adjudicates that the person is dangerous and they put uh, what the first step in California is a 14-day commitment following that initial hearing. Um, And that's an adjudication by a judge. Physicians aren't judges, and the judge can disagree with us, and the courts often We'll release people that we think are very dangerous, hopefully not too often. It rarely happens. But that's what commitment is, is the legal adjudication. What it sounds like you're describing is a process that kind of unfolds like this. And and please correct me along the way if I get it wrong. A person comes in to some sort of portal of entry, probably an emergency room or maybe a mental health crisis center. They're considered to be in need of involuntary hospitalization for a variety of reasons, and maybe we'll talk a little bit about some of those in a few minutes. And a psychiatrist or somebody who has the authority that's equivalent, uh, maybe a resident or maybe a psychologist, completes the first set of paperwork and submits that to some sort of authority, whether that is a court or a magistrate or some sort of official. And then my understanding is that the hold period begins and that uh, during that hold period, the patient may be entitled to a second opinion from another clinician who is not involved in the care of the patient or was not party to the initial assessment. And then after that hold period uh, kind of transpires, the patient is given the opportunity for some sort of hearing where they present themselves in front of uh, some sort of trier of fact and law, maybe a judge or somebody like a judge. Is that your understanding? Yes. And I've been involved in commitment proceedings myself in, in four different states. And what was interesting is, is that those four states um, had fairly similar laws, but the execution and the procedures were wildly different from each other. One of the landmark cases from back in the 70s uh, was called Addington v. Texas, and it actually addressed what the constitutional minimum was for someone to be civilly committed. And so most people know that if you're going to be convicted of a crime, the state has the burden to prove beyond a reasonable doubt, which is a, a very high standard. And so beyond a reasonable doubt would be like somewhere between 90 to 95 percent. 
Yes, high high level of proof, 90-95%. Not beyond all doubt, beyond any imaginable doubt, there can be a small amount. And the laws don't actually specify the number, but the number is helpful for us to think about. So, yeah, so if you think of beyond a reasonable doubt being over 90-95% maybe, preponderance of the evidence being more likely than not. And then there's a a middle standard called clear and convincing, which most of us think of as about 75% certainty. More certainty than preponderance of evidence, but less than what would be needed to criminally convict somebody. Now, a state could have a higher standard. A state could require it, and there have been some civil commitment laws that have required the beyond a reasonable doubt standard. But what couldn't happen is a state couldn't have a lower standard. A state couldn't say, you know, even if we think there's a possibility that you're mentally ill, we're going to keep you locked up for 14 days. It the The hearing with the judge requires the clear and convincing evidence standard. Where I've seen physicians get confused is they have some awareness of that fact. But on the front end, when they're placing the hold in the emergency room, they get hung up on that. And I've seen some cases where there were physicians that really should have put a hold on somebody, but they were thinking, well, I don't know if this person would meet the clear and convincing uh, standard for dangerousness, uh, so I can't put a hold on him. Well, they're really getting a little bit ahead of themselves because a lot of things can happen during that 72-hour hold period. You can get collateral information. You can talk to family. You can uh, detoxify somebody from a, a drug. You can do lots of things between when you place the hold and when they actually have the commitment hearing. And if a doctor gets too hung up on, well, I think in a few days the judge isn't going to allow this, you are actually putting yourself and the patient at a lot of risk of them being quite dangerous. And so when you're placing a hold on somebody, you're not a judge in the ER trying to figure out the clear and convincing analysis. You really are in a position where you need to make a decision quite quickly about whether or not you think somebody is a danger to self or others. And really it should be up to the judge in a few days during the actual hearing to get into the standard of proof issue. Could we talk a little bit about the criteria themselves. Uh, we've certainly talked about the process, which I think is is critical, but the actual criteria, they're probably spelled out on the commitment forms that uh, clinicians fill out, and they're probably found in statutes in, in every one of the 50 states. And maybe they're clarified by case law in those states as well. Is it your understanding that uh, someone has to first have a mental illness in order for any part of this procedure to Uh, follow. Yes. And the challenge is that different states may actually define uh, what that means in a different way. I was afraid you were going to say that. (laughs) You know, some states will say as a result of a mental disorder. Some states will say as a result of a mental disease, illness, or disorder. There's different ways that people describe it. And some states, that may be where they leave it which would actually give the court a lot of um, discretion about what to use as a hold. And then other states actually try to define it a little tighter. And when they define it a little tighter, it may exclude certain things from civil commitment type of hold. There's states that handle dangerousness due to intoxication or dangerousness due to intellectual disability Uh, with their own codified language. In other states, you know, it's all kind of approached sometimes in a a similar way. 
you know, the mistake I've seen some people make is, oh, well, they don't actually have a mental illness. They just have a personality disorder. And, you know, I ask residents who think that way, well, why do you think a personality disorder is not a mental illness or a mental disorder? And what happens is people will get hung up on something like whether something met axis one or axis two criteria in the old multi-axial system that we don't use anymore. If somebody in the ER appears to be mentally ill and they're making a dangerous decision, you act. And you don't focus so much on the diagnosis as much as, is there something going on psychiatrically that requires action? And it's the next element of the standard that I think is really the more important issue. And that really is how the statute looks at whether the person is dangerous or not and how they uh, use it. So most places will use language that will say something like, for example, in California, they'll use the language, a danger to others or to himself or herself, or gravely disabled. In Arkansas, where I did my residency, uh, the language is a little simpler, and they just say, a clear and present danger to himself or herself. And then they have some examples of how they might meet that. But generally speaking, most statutes have danger to self or danger to others, which a lot of people will say suicidal or homicidal, but really it's a little broader than just using those two terms. And not everybody, but probably the majority of statutes also have something called a grave disability arm. And what's that? Some states have actually really broadened what that means in the last 10 years. So for the way a lot of people think about grave disability, the way a lot of these statutes are written, it really gets into do they have the ability to provide for their basic needs? Can they provide for food, clothing, or shelter? And that makes grave disability a little different than the other two. So, you know, if I'm suicidal, I'm suicidal. If I'm homicidal, I'm homicidal. But gravely disabled could vary depending on what my circumstances are. So if I am an adult with schizophrenia that lives with my parents who are providing me food, housing, and shelter, then my eligibility for the grave disability arm might not be the same as somebody with the exact same diagnosis, the same presenting symptoms, but they're homeless and they're having to steal food from from dumpsters. Let's uh, talk a little bit about treatment, if we could. Sometimes patients either who are admitted voluntarily or present to emergency rooms or mental health crisis units end up in circumstances where they need uh, medication to help them manage their behavior, and the medicine needs to be delivered very quickly, and informed consent may not be an option uh, in those circumstances. It may be a life-saving circumstance. Does a patient need to have involuntary commitment paperwork on file before emergency medications of that sort are administered? No. An emergency is an emergency. Someone who signs in voluntarily or somebody in the ER who hasn't even been seen yet, who suddenly becomes very aggressive and very dangerous, you may have to administer medications immediately. But that's for an emergency. What isn't allowed without the patient's consent is medication that isn't something that needs to happen right there to prevent someone from being harmed. And that's the confusion that a lot of people have, that just because somebody is civilly committed doesn't mean that now you can do whatever they want or whatever you want. In most states, 
there is a completely separate process for forced administration of medications uh, that is different than the actual requirements allowed to hold somebody. So it sounds like there's we're talking about at least three different things. In in one case, uh, we're talking about emergency forced medications that are used when someone's life is in danger or they're at risk of extreme violence. And in that circumstance, you're saying that the patient's admission status is irrelevant, that the healthcare system and the healthcare provider can act regardless of whether the patient is voluntary or involuntary. Absolutely. It's, it's worthwhile to think of it similar to an analogous situation with a medical problem. If somebody comes into the emergency room, they've been shot, they're unconscious, they're bleeding, you don't go through, well, what do they want? Do they want this kind of treatment? You do what you have to do to save their life. And if somebody is violent, aggressive, really in immediate danger, you just do what you have to do to make the situation safe. And that is an emergency. And so sometimes I've seen psychiatrists who think, well, it's an emergency. He's hearing voices. Uh, it's an emergency. He's got these delusions. Well, no, not if it doesn't involve some sort of immediate risk of danger to others. So let's let's talk about that. It sounds like you're making a distinction between involuntary commitment, which really, you know, in, in my understanding, allows clinicians to lock the door and work with the judge on when the patient can be discharged safely. And the, the other distinction you're making is with something that's, that's a bit more subtle and complicated. This would be the patient who is admitted to an inpatient psychiatric unit and is not able to improve enough for discharge without medication, but that same patient is unwilling to take medication. And so there may be some sort of non-emergency forced medication issue at hand. It varies by state on whether or not the process that you have to go through is something that can be done internally, administratively, or is it another thing that you have to go to a judge on? In California, where I am, the judge approves involuntary administration of the medications. There's other states where you don't need to go through a court. And usually it involves some sort of administrative process where you have a second uh, opinion, often by a senior psychiatrist. I was in Louisiana for many years, and that was our legal mechanism. So if a patient refused their medication, I was often the second doctor who would go and evaluate the person and make a decision. And if the two doctors agreed, we completed some paperwork and the medications could be administered. You know, that's, a, that's an important... Uh not exactly a non sequitur. If a clinician changes states, you know, what's what's interesting about psychiatry is that haloperidol works just fine in Louisiana and Arkansas. However, uh, when you cross the border, everything that we've talked about uh, in this episode is completely different between Louisiana and Arkansas. It gets very challenging. And the worst place was where I practiced before I moved to California. I was in Washington, D.C., we had patients that were driving across the bridge over the Potomac River from Virginia, which was about 15 blocks from our unit, or a mile or two up the road was Maryland. And so we actually had three different states. We'd have circumstances where if the person presented to an emergency room uh, on one side of the bridge, it was a different legal standard than on our side of the bridge. And the challenge to that was often in the discharge planning, because people would often be returning back to uh, their state of origin. If you lived in Arlington, Virginia, and you came to Washington, Georgetown 
in D.C. for treatment. Well, once you're committed, you're committed in D.C. You're not actually committed in the state of Virginia. So it could create a lot of complications. And there's a lot of places where, you know, New Jersey, New York, there's, you know, cities that are right on a state border. In California, it's such a huge state that, you know, it's very nice that the standards that we have in San Francisco are, in theory, the same as San Diego. So doctors usually move around the state. The problem is, is that you get this county by county variation, which means that some things that apply in San Francisco County, where I work, are different than Marin County, where I live, that are only separated by the Golden Gate Bridge. (laughs) Now, Dr. Newman, you mentioned uh, discharge planning in one of your examples. There are laws in some states about uh, something that's referred to as uh, involuntary outpatient treatment or outpatient commitment. There are a variety of terms used to describe uh, this. I think one of them is facilitated outpatient treatment. What is your understanding about uh, this domain of law? Well, it's it's a very well-intentioned domain of law that so far has very variable outcomes. And the idea is really that one of the biggest problems that we have is, especially now that involuntary commitment laws are quite stringent, somebody has to be dangerous usually, either to themselves or others or gravely disabled, that they have to be pretty sick before they can even be treated. And then when they leave the hospital, They may no longer be dangerous, but they may not be well. And especially for illnesses like schizophrenia, where a lack of insight is often a chronic aspect of the disease. One of the big problems you have is, is that you commit people, you hospitalize them, you treat them, you medicate them, they get better, they look pretty good, they leave. And then as soon as they're out in the community again, it goes right back to the way it is. And the problem is, If you have to wait until they now meet the criteria for dangerousness again, you're taking a risk. You know, is that person going to be um, shot by the police? Are they going to commit suicide? Are they going to harm somebody else? A lot of things can happen if you wait until they're dangerous again. And so the idea behind um, outpatient civil commitment or assisted treatment was really, in a lot of ways, to create a form of leverage for compliance after discharge. And so the idea was really that, you know, this person is leaving, but if they start missing their appointments and they don't show up to get their injection, then we can put them back in the hospital. It's because it's challenging, obviously, to force treatment in a community because a lot of people, even when they have access to the law, don't quite know what to do with it. I mean, one of the problems with outpatient civil commitment is that it implies that you have a functional mental health system to begin with. And in places that have very few providers, very few treatment, you know, you can require somebody to comply with their treatment. But if there's no treatment for them, then there's some limitations. You really need to have the resources to support it. Well, Dr. Newman, I want to thank you for taking time out of your schedule to uh, talk with us about this topic. It's a pleasure. Uh, I hope it's uh, helpful and, and relevant to, to everybody who's had a chance to hear you. Anything else you want to mention regarding IVC that you want me to throw in? So one thing that some states have done is they've actually gone beyond the grave disability, danger to, danger to others approach, and they've added an additional arm that some people will call a need for treatment arm. And what this does is it, in some ways, uh, addresses some of the same thinking that you get in outpatient commitment laws 
into the inpatient standards. So one state that I know that's done this is Arkansas, where I trained. They didn't have this law when I trained, but they implemented this law, um, I think, around 2007. And so in addition to the usual danger to self, danger to others type of standard, they added one additional arm. And it's interesting. The additional arm is that you can meet the criteria for clear and present danger to yourself or others if, and what they say in their statute is, the person's recent behavior history demonstrates that they lack the capacity to care for his or her own welfare, that there's a substantial probability of death, serious bodily injury, or serious physical or mental debilitation if admission is not ordered. Now, that sounds like grave disability, but they added one additional example of how they would meet that, which was they say the person's understanding of their need for treatment is impaired to the point that they're unlikely to participate in treatment voluntarily. They need treatment to prevent relapse, and their noncompliance has been a factor in previous hospitalizations or prison or jail. And they actually in Arkansas give a time frame. So if you've had at least two times in the last 48 months where you've been hospitalized or put in jail or prison as a consequence of your noncompliance and you lack insight, and the statute's a little more precise than this, you can be committed just for that. And so you can have a circumstance where somebody has been a danger to themselves, admitted. Six months later, they're a danger to themselves, they're admitted. Six months later, they're not necessarily an imminent danger to themselves, but they're noncompliant, they're going down that road, they lack insight, and they show up in an emergency room. And in Arkansas, you can actually commit them at that point because you can say that the combination of their lack of insight and their noncompliance means that they are at a risk of grave disability in some way. Different states have done this in different ways. And it's very interesting. Obviously, people that are very strong advocates of the civil liberties of a patient don't like this because that's a much broader net to bring in people that are at risk. There's a website you can go to from a group called the Treatment Advocacy Center, and they actually have descriptions of every state's civil commitment laws, and they talk about outpatient treatment. But they very much advocate for states adding this kind of arm to their civil commitment codes because from their perspective, you know, this is a chance to then give somebody treatment who lacks insight before they're a danger to somebody else. You know, it's been about 50 or 60 years uh, since the pendulum swung away from parents patriae to stricter dangerousness criteria. And hearing you talk about this uh, grave disability piece sounds like, it sounds like the pendulum may be swinging back in that direction. It absolutely sounds like it. And it. I think it remains to be seen whether these additional arms are going to make a difference. Obviously, if people who are in the field aren't aware that that option exists, then it doesn't make a difference if the statute allows it. 